Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. Well, hello, and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey. Great to have you here this day and every smart investing show that we do uh, once a week here for our listeners. I am the president of Wilsey Asset Management, and we got a lot of things to talk about today. Uh, Going to talk about uh, the PPI and the CPI, so inflation numbers came out, so we want to discuss those and how they affect uh, investing, the market. Also, we're going to talk about something called the peg ratio. Sometimes we mention this on the review or the analysis that we do on the companies. We'll talk a little bit more about the peg ratio today for you uh, to help you understand the peg ratio. And uh, Chase, what do you got? Yeah, well, hey, you got a stock you're looking to buy and sell and holding. You want us to break down those fundamentals. Actually, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. You'll see at the top of the page there, there's a, a button, there's a link that says, radio show questions. I got a hint for you. Click that button, type in the stock, leave us a message there so we know what you want us to look at and we can break down those fundamentals and uh, again, give you our opinion on uh, the the analyst estimates, the valuation ratios, the balance sheet, and really give you a good idea of what we think about that particular stock. We call them equities or companies. And Chase, it's something that we can do during the show. You can do it after the show. You can do it on Monday, Tuesday, whenever you think of it. Submit those questions right there. And, I, and I'm looking at the website right now. Very easy. I like the way Allison did it. Smart investing show questions. You can't miss it, can you? Nope. <laughs> so we'll answer your questions there. So, all right. So so let's talk about uh, inflation because we've talked about this for, I'm going to say, probably going on two years and that things would get better. At first, they said that, that they were transitory. They were not transitory. Uh, then we said, yes, things will get better. Well, PPI came out, which stands for Producer Price Index. Uh, More great news on the inflation front. As the Producer Price Index, PPI fell 0.5% in the month of October, which was well below expectations of a 0.1% increase. This also marked the largest monthly decline since April 2020. Compared to last year, the index showed an increase of just 1.3% which was a nice decline from September's reading of 2.2%. Now, even looking at the core PPI, which again excludes food and energy, there was positive news. It was flat compared to September, which was well below the expectation for a 0.3% increase. And the reduced inflation problems for producers should actually continue to benefit consumer prices in the month ahead. The months ahead, I should say. And with that, you know, we have the CPI report here. So I'll kind of table some of the, the conversation until we go through the CPI report because I, I think we're going to continue to see big positives on the consumer price index because of this PPI as well. And I do want to point out that I, I, I we talked about the PPI first. Uh, I'm certain in the olden days, the PPI used to come out first. Nowadays, the CPI comes out first. And I, I, I just remember the old days, and I'm talking five, 10 years ago. I was going to say, I think the PPI didn't come about until like 2013. Yeah, but but I, I'm, I'm confident that it used to come out before the CPI. But anyways, uh, the CPI came out actually the day before the, the CPI or the PPI. When CPI is con- Consumer Price Index, uh, there were some major pauses in the CPI report, which uh, sent interest rates tumbling. Uh, in fact, the 10-year Treasury fell below 4.5%. Now, what was so positive about the CPI? The headline number showed just a 3.2% increase in inflation compared to last year, and the core CPI showed a gain of just 4%, which was below the expectation of 4.1% increase. This was also the lowest reading for core CPI since September 2021. and is well below the peak of 6.6% that was hit last September. Areas where inflation still remains hot include mission 
uh, to sporting events, wow, up 25.1%. Motor vehicle repair, 15.1% increase. And motor vehicle insurance, no surprise here, 19.2%. Another area that continues to push inflation higher is shelter, which increased 6.7% compared to last year. Now, continue to believe here that this index does, I must say, a poor job reflecting the current state of shelter costs, yet it accounted for more than 70% of the increase in core CPI. And and I just, again, we've talked about this a lot on the show, but the reason I I, I think it does such a poor job is right now rents are not going up near 7% compared to last year. And it's just the way that that is calculated, it's just... I don't think a very good indicator of actually what's occurring with inflation. So I, I, I do think it is, again, ludicrous that, I'm going to repeat this number again, accounted for more than 70% of the increase in core CPIs, that shelter index. So you remove that, I mean, it, it things look a lot better. And I, I continue to believe that as the shelter index normalizes, we could actually quickly see a push towards the Fed's target of 2%. Now, I don't believe we will get there next year necessarily to 2% flat, but I do believe we will see core inflation fall below 3% next year. For this reason, I do believe the Fed's hiking cycle has ended. I do believe they will continue to talk tough and push the higher for longer narrative. But with cooling inflation next year, I would not be surprised to see rate cuts in the back part of the year. Now, this should bode well for the right stocks in the market here. And, and you know, and I, I'm sitting here listening to it and kind of reviewing it. Uh, we could see some pauses because of the shelter cost. And again, mm-hmm. it's a big part of it, up almost nearly 7%. Uh, rents, I mean, there is so much supply coming online. And there is starting to be signs now of rents are starting to pull back. Yeah. But I think based on that, yes, we should be down to the 2%. But then I'm starting thinking now all these places, I mean, thousands of rental units are becoming going to come online is as opposed to reducing rent are they going to give some type of incentive that will appear they're not reducing the rent when they are that won't make it in the calculation you understand what i'm saying there yeah you could give what six months free rent or something I, you probably don't do that on the retail side or the the resi the residential <laughs> side <laughs> no um, word we learned last week resi well i guess as a side note yeah we, we got to speak to the uh the CEO and COO of a office REIT that we own in the portfolio. And he kind of was talking about some land that they own. And, you know, he's like, yeah, we've gotten some inquiries from some uh, resi yeah. companies. And we're like, resi. I mean, I put two and two together. Was, oh, residential. residential. <laughs> but yeah, just a, a side note there. But when you're, you're looking at it is, you know, maybe they'll give one month free rent or something when you, you sign the lease. You know, when you do commercial or office, generally it's a, a longer yeah. rent abatement or free rent. But that could be something, yeah, you're right, where rents technically don't go down, but it is an incentive to get people right. to rent instead. And I don't know how that will come out in the calculation because if you get – and again, they could get three months free rent. I see that's a possibility. Um, do they just not calculate that or do they – and I'm talking about they being um, uh, the Bureau – who does it? Bureau of Labor Statistics? Yeah, BLS. Yeah, uh, BLS. That would they say, oh, well, that doesn't matter. We'll just talk about the one – the next nine months, or do they average it out? So kind of an interesting thing that they'll kind of look at there. I, I don't, my feeling is they're not going to average it out because they're going to look at what the number is. They're not going to say it's free rent. They're just going to look at what the rents are being paid. Yeah, and actually, I'm just kind of thinking, I don't know if the BLS actually does CPI just in hindsight because it's not a labor measure. You know? So um, I don't know if the government entity that does yeah. it, but it is a, it is conducted by, uh, it's by a, the government. It's a government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to look, yeah, look at that. Who, who actually does the CPI? Yeah, um, not, 
I I am gonna say though I don't I think three months would be very aggressive to to give because generally you sign a one-year lease where right. you get six months free rent sometimes when you sign a office lease right. but you're conducting that lease for six seven years so you know it kind of evens out the cash flows over the long term i mean to give three months that means you're only getting nine months of rent potentially what they could do is extend the lease two years now if you do one year you get one month free but hey if you go two years with us you'll get three months free but it i, I mean the main thing is somehow i believe it they're going to give incentives which may not show that reduction in rent that people are actually receiving which means we have a false number uh, of you know up to seven percent that accounts for a big part of, of the increase in the CPI. So we'll, we'll be watching it closely and see. But I, I think even with that, we'll still see that come down. And, and I think we could see very close to the two percent yeah. uh, mid next year. Well, yeah. and I, I did Google it real quick. It is the, the BLS does do the CPI, which is kind of funny. It's not a labor measure, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics does the CPI. Yeah, I, I, and I kind of thought because I think they do a lot just because they're labor statistics i think they do a lot of statistics yeah. for the government yeah and I, I was gonna say as well i mean just kind of looking at these two reports together as i said the the ppi increased 1.3 percent compared to last year and then the cpi increased what was it uh gosh 3.2 percent what's the big difference between ppi and cpi or one of the big differences between ppi and cpi i don't um there's no shelter. No shelter. Yeah, I, I was gonna say. I was just gonna. Like, oh wait. Then, then, you, then you said it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that does show you take out shelter, uh, it'd be a lot lower. Yeah, and I, you know, I we said that I don't know if we can get to the two percent, but I I think there is a possibility we do get to two percent next year. And very important too, this is CPI. The 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 Fed looks at the PCE. So again, there's all these different inflation right. measures, but generally they're gonna move together because right. if prices are rising or declining no matter how you look at it they're going to kind of move in conjunction with one another and the economy is slowing down it's not going negative it's slowing down from the growth side so that is a positive uh, oil gosh oil i think hit 72 dollars a barrel i think it was this past week which was uh, pretty low the united states i believe we had our biggest production of like over 13 million, million barrels uh in a day. I mean, it's it, it just, there's a lot of positives going on. A lot of people want to be all negative. It's like, well, you're always going to have some negatives, but it really prevents you from investing. And and we can't tell how well our portfolio did over the last couple of weeks here, but I mean, it just reminds me back in the days of 2009. Yeah. I, I mean, things can move very quickly. Yeah. And, and we talked about this, I think, last week mm -hmm. or it was the week before, but I mean, you just never know. I mean, this past week, you know, you had a move of, you know, I'm not going to say on our portfolio, we did very well that day, but I think the, the markets after the CPI report were up like 3%, I want to say, you know, um, and I'm confusing what we were up. <laughs> you know, I'm trying I'm to be careful. Here. Trying to be careful with the SEC, not to give a lot of performance numbers. But, but I, I think the markets, you know, after the CPI report, they, they did very, very well. Right. And it's like, you know, and the funny thing too is that they did very well after a CPI report that. Yeah, it was below expectations, but right. not drastically below expectations. And it, the thing is, you could be right on an economic measure, and you're like, well, I think you know CPI maybe is going to be a little bit hot or maybe a little bit cold. But then you got to think about what's the market going to do it, and you don't know. Right. And, and that's where people trying to time it are are just going to be wrong, and, and it, it's it's too difficult. I, I, and I think what the CPI PPI report did was it took any chance of increases off the table for the rest of this year and perhaps even going forward. 
that the Fed is is done. Um, that, that's why I think we had the big rally. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's interesting. There are some people that, that believe the Fed could cut rates to 2% next year on the front end of the curve. I don't know if we'll get there. I mean, that yeah. that's going from 5 to 2, 2.5. I mean, that's a pretty large decline. But the reason this guy uh, was watching CNBC and his reasoning for it was, well, with lower inflation, you're not getting a huge real return on money market accounts, right. on T-bills. You don't, quite frankly, deserve to get a, I'm going to say a 3% real return on risk-free money. Yeah, and that, that was kind of his justification is if we get inflation back down to 2%, you know, the Fed should be able to reduce rates back down to around 2%. And you maybe two and a half, maybe even 3%, we'll call it, where you're still getting a 1% real return. And real means you take your total return minus the inflation rate, that's going to be your real return. You shouldn't have interest rates at 5% on the short end of the curve and inflation at 2%. That was kind of the point he was making. And that did make some sense to me as well. And and we've talked about, we've warned people like, yeah, you might be happy now that uh, 4%, 5% CD that you got, but uh, your reinvestment risk is very high because I think next year when that comes due, that six month or 12 month, you'll at best be seeing maybe a four, but I think more likely in the threes because I think we'll see a more uh, return to a normal yield curve where low, uh, short-term rates are lower than long-term rates. Yeah. So, and I, I think that's what people want to be careful. Of. So that's why we watch so closely and analyze and dissect these uh, inflation numbers because we want to see what's going to happen with interest rates, which affects a lot of different things. I was going to say, it's so funny. Uh, I was just thinking probably, what, four years ago, five years ago, we were not talking very much about inflation on the radio show. It was just kind of like, it was just there. The report, yeah. the reports would come in. It, it wasn't, and now every single month, it's so important what's going yeah. on with inflation. I, I think, quite frankly, in two to three years from now, I think it's going to be kind of something similar where we're not going to be taking up five, ten minutes on the radio show <laughs> talking about inflation because there'll be something else that we're more fixated on. But inflation is just, I think, going to be a, a byproduct of the economy. Well, and it's been so important for investors because it really got a lot of people off track concerned about inflation, concerned about interest rates. They sold their stocks, sold their equities, and just, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to go to a T-bill and get 5%, just wait for things to get better, which is a, the foolish thing you can ever say because when things get better, that means they're more expensive. So uh, you want to buy when things are terrible and sell when things are great. But it's just this is why we spend so much time on it because it really got investors off track. Um, and we've tried to help them to stay on track. Now, is that the uh, investment strategy where you buy low and sell high? Is that something new? <laughs> I've never know. heard of that. <laughs> but people, are th- and that's why, you know, our slogan at our firm is no emotions, just results, because it is an emotional decision when you sell out when things are bad, because yeah. things are on sale. But your emotions say, oh, they're going to go lower and I'm going to lose everything. Like, that's emotional. It's not. And that's why in our firm, we look at the the fundamentals. We look at what we're paying for the business. And we know when we bought something, yeah, it may be down six months, 12 months, but we're going to be two, three years down the road. And that's what we try to do is have people stop looking short term and try to feel better about owning a 5% CD because it feels good today. But you're going to be so far behind the curve down the road. And I, I did a great thing on uh, KOSI, I think it was like uh, two weeks ago, uh, where I actually showed how much you're behind the curve when you actually fall behind 5%. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. 
Well, let's talk about uh, ETF investors because I was shocked to see that based on an annual study from Schwab Asset Management, millennial ETF investors have 45% of their portfolios in fixed income, which is substantially higher than 37% for Generation X. Also, 51% of millennials plan to invest in bond ETFs next year compared to just 40%. Uh, of baby boomers. Now, I I believe the craziness of the COVID investing and the meme stock craze has has really dented millennials' view of stocks. Many want that quick hit when it comes to investing, and they have failed to realize how long-term investing actually works. The unfortunate part is many of these millennials are hurting their long-term investment returns by shifting so much into fixed income, and and when they realize the benefits of long-term investing five to 10 years from now, well, they will have missed out on the massive benefit of compounding during that time period. And, and this is, again, exactly what we're talking about. We just, we just talked about uh, industry and what people are doing. And, and here's a survey from, from Schwab where people are doing the wrong thing because of emotions and saying, well, I want to be in bonds. And actually, tomorrow on um, KSI, my segment at 840 uh, in the morning, I'm talking about because people want to know about bonds, a bond mutual fund compared to individual bonds because it's what people want to hear. And I will say at the beginning, I do not recommend doing bonds. But if you're going to do them, here's how you do the the funds versus the individual bonds. Well, and just I really think again, I'm going to reemphasize that point about you know the GameStop situation, the AMC's. I mean, that was really driven in large part by younger investors, right? And they saw that you could make a lot of money. In a, a few days, a few weeks, we'll call it even a few months potentially. And now, all of a sudden, all those stocks have struggled <laughs> immensely. And, you know, if they stayed in them or if they tried to find the next investment or they even had invested, I'll say, in the S&P, for the last two years, you've really made no money investing right. unless you put all of your money into NVIDIA. Um, but outside of that, it, it's been a very challenging market for two years. So I think a lot of these millennials are like, what is the point of investing? I haven't made any money for two years. Right. You know, I made all this money before and, and now I either lost it or I can't make that money somewhere else. And two years is such a short time period yeah. in the investing game. And to lock in yields of, I'll say, 4% even on darn near half your portfolio when you're in your 30s, yeah. early 40s, is a huge mistake. And, you know, even we don't like rules of thumb, but the whole old mantra of, you know, when you get older, you need bonds. Well, these people aren't that old. You don't need bonds. <laughs> I will tell you right now, I am a millennial. I have zero bonds in my portfolio. It makes no sense because you look down 5, 10, 15 years. Most of these millennials are at least 20 years away from retirement. Why in the heck? Are you going to lock in a 4% yield on something? It just makes no sense. And I'm a baby boomer, and I have 0% of my money in bonds because I, I, I'm i 67. I don't plan on passing away next year or two. And, even, and this is one thing I tell people. Even if I do pass away, okay, oh, you had it all in equities. What happens? It passes to you, my kids. You get the step-up basis, and hopefully you guys hold that for the next 20, 30, 40 years. You know? Or worst case— you pass away, and the equities went down over the next two years. Did it affect you? No. no. <laughs> and then, oh, now we inherit these, let's say, and you know, you continue to hold them. And probably if they were down over the last two years, 
well, you're not going to want to sell them. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> and just... and I, I will say we do advocate in our firm. We do check with people that when you are older, like me, yeah. gosh, I hate to say that, but um, you do have to have oh. some cash reserves, not in bonds, but cash reserves and you know, short-term, maybe a, a money market. Maybe I mean, a T-bill. You know, it maybe makes a sense. short-term. T- yeah, so, something for that emergency that can come up well, medically. But investment-wise, no. No bonds in the portfolio. They are not a good long-term investment. And it's kind of funny. I know you have conversations with people. You're generally the one that calls them uh, when they want appointments. Uh, I mean, we tell people, you know, we'll average 8 10 maybe 12% over the next, you know, 5 to 7 years. And that's the average. It doesn't mean that's all we're going to earn. But some people say, oh, well, that's not good enough. Like, what do you mean not good enough? Yeah, but you're willing to lock in a 5% rate, but 8% is not it, – it just – it makes no sense. People's logic sometimes escapes me. But, you know, you, you look at this, again, 41% is it, it's really going to hurt those those returns for, for millennials in the long term. And I will say if there weren't so many opportunities right now – and we'll kind of talk about this with the pay ratio – Maybe it would make some sense to have some bonds in the portfolio if you just couldn't find anything to buy. But right now, outside of the Magnificent Seven, a lot of the stock market is still in bear market territory, down more than 20% from their highs. There's so many opportunities. If all of a sudden we were at record highs and everything was doing well, maybe we're back in, I'm going to say, 2021 at the end of the year, everything was a little bit more expensive. And if we got yields around 4 to 5%, yeah, I would probably put some money into bonds as a, maybe like a temporary holding situation to get some interest until we found something to buy. But right now, there's so many opportunities that fixed income is just – it's lacking in my opinion. And, and, and yeah, my 40 years or so of investing, I mean I, I have used bonds over that time frame. But I, I do remember getting yields of 8% to 9% on bonds. like, And that's pretty tough to beat. But, you know, a 4 or 5%. Uh, no, I, I, equities will do better longer term, and that's what we, we look at the situation. And, and again, very important too is the is the analysis and the research that you do. And one thing we talk about here on the radio show is a PEG ratio, and PEG stands for price earnings divided by growth. It tells you how much you're paying for the future growth of that company. Well, every Monday. Uh, we go over the, the main fundamentals of all the equities we hold in the portfolio. I'm talking about such things as evaluations for the earnings, sales, and cash flow. We also look at the growth rate on the earnings and sales along with the debt and liquidity of all the equities that we own. There are many other factors we look at, and the entire process takes between three to four hours every Monday. We have done this every Monday for well over uh, 20 I'm going to say probably 25 years religiously. The reason I bring this up is I cannot remember the last time I saw such strong price earnings ratios and attractive peg ratios for companies in our portfolio. And the big thing, too, is the peg ratio. We kind of mentioned this already, but just to reemphasize for people, it shows an investor what they're paying for the future growth of a company. The peg stands for price earnings divided by growth, and no one knows exactly when the turnaround will happen. But based on you know, our firm's 40 years of experience when it comes to investing in the finance world, we have been through this many times, and we are confident companies, stocks, again, we call them equities, will soon be based on valuations, including the peg ratio. Those investors that remain patient with the right companies, as always, will be rewarded and, you know, kind of 
harp again on this <laughs> topic, but investors who panic and fall in love with the CD at five percent, I, I continue to believe you're just going to regret that down the road. And 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 I hope people, you know, because listeners, you know, they say, "Gosh, Brent and Chase really don't want people in the CDs. They really don't want people in bonds for the short for the long term." Yeah, please tell your friends that because we will stand behind that. I've done this for a long time. We are not emotional doing this. And when I look at things here, and I want to point out too, this does not mean that on Monday the markets are going to go up. You're going to be fine. We've had over the last, well, for, forever volatility, but you're always going to have volatility. But where are you going to be? And, and right now we're looking where we'll be come December 31st, the end of 2024, 25. We look at longer term. And I, I still will, will say that I believe between now and the end of the year, I see clear sailing. I think we're going to do pretty well. I don't see anything come up. We got the actor strike is settled, automobile strike is settled. Rates seem to be government shutdowns off the table. Off the table, so I, I do not see any you know thing that's going to cause any problem going forward. Well, there is now the Starbucks union strike, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think the Las Vegas workers may right. still be on strike as well. But um, you know, I mean, those are smaller parts, I believe, of the economy. So it, it's you know, there's always going to be some outside noise. And I did want to again go back to the whole CD and fixed income sure. thing, just to be clear for people. I have recommended CDs to people before. But not long but, term. But not long term. It's, right. it's, hey, I'm looking at buying a house in the next six months to a year. Okay, don't invest that money because no. you would hate to invest. It goes down, let's say, it could go down 10%. Now you have to sell, lock in a loss, and then you know buy a house with less money. Or you, even if it does great, let's say, now you're going to pay taxes, short-term capital gains on it. Yeah. If you're looking at that situation or, again, you're older – I think a CD is a great tool to use for the keyword is short-term money. Short-term money, exactly. And if you don't need the money for five years, no, you don't need a CD. No, no. And a lot of this information does come from our newsletter. It goes out every Friday at 5 o'clock. Uh, on this uh, newsletter also we had automobile stock prices. We talk about home sales, consumer spending, holiday spending. That was a pretty amazing topic. Pork prices. If you're in California, you're gonna love that one. Uh, it is free. Just go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. Now that's right in the middle of the page where it says newsletter. That's right above your smart investing show questions. So you can sign up for the newsletter, and at the same time, you may have a question about, well, in my portfolio, I'm not sure if XYZ company is worth holding or should I sell it. So that's yeah. a question right there. So, all righty. Uh, again, that is smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Well, well, let's talk about, uh, we got an email here from uh, Grant, and he says, uh, hope all is well. I was reaching out to see if you could go over Carnival Cruise Line, symbol CCL, on the Smart Investing Show one of these coming weeks. Uh, I bought some of it just about a year ago, and I'm curious uh, of what you think about it. Well, let's talk about Cardinal Cruise Lines. This is one that we actually did hold years ago, and it, we'll talk ahead of time about this. I was going to wait till the end, but it's on my mind now. Is that we bought this company, and I remember we bought them. They never had a losing year earnings, and that included uh, the Great Recession. Yeah. And then we held it, and then COVID just destroyed this company. And we saw things that I've never seen before with the huge amount of debt they were taking on, the huge amount of issuance of stock. They just diluted those earnings. It was terrible what this company did. I mean, just speaking of the dilution, I, I believe they more than doubled the share count during that time period. So what that means is even if 
earnings got back to pre-COVID levels, the earnings per share would be half what they yeah. were because of all that stock that was issued. So it was a huge issue. And, and this is why it's so important to really make sure you have a good diversified portfolio because, as you said, we did all the research on Carnival. Who in the heck would have known that we were going to have this thing happen with COVID, <sighs> yeah, COVID. That, that destroyed this business? And outside of that, I bet you Carnival would have done great if there oh, was yeah. ever no COVID. Yeah. Got a nice, I think it was a 4 or 5% dividend yield on Carnival Cruise Lines. But there's some things that, quite frankly, when it comes to investing, that are out of your control. And if you have, I'm going to say, 50% of your portfolio right. in a particular business, maybe it's not a Carnival. Maybe it's something else where there's things outside of your control where the stock tanks. It totally ruins your portfolio. Yeah, and, and it's one that, I mean, we, we obviously took a loss on that one. But this is the difference between being an emotional investor and looking at the fundamentals. We saw all these negative things happening on the company. I, I think we took a 50% haircut, I believe, on, on, yeah. on the company, something like that. And it was hard to do because you don't want to see the loss. But we said, no, this, this company, based on the debt they're raising, the dilution they're doing, um, you talked about the earnings, it would, they'd have to double, triple the earnings to even get back to, to break even. I said, this is not a company. And it's still, I don't believe anywhere close to what we uh, sold it at. But let's see where it stands now, because I'm kind of curious. So I've not looked at this since I think we sold it. Uh, I don't think anybody's yeah. asked for it. So coming again is Carnival Cruise Lines. Now their symbol is CCL, they're in the travel service industry. Wow, a 13.5% short on the float. So they still think this is not uh, in clear waters yet. Excuse the pun there. Uh, institutional owned 52%. Uh, no P.E. ratio, which means they have no earnings over the last 12 months. Industry's at 28.9. Price to sales looks good, 0.9 versus 2.5. Price to tangible book value, 3.7 versus non-material at the industry. And then price to cash flow is 5.8 versus 11.7, but no peg ratio, which we just talked about. So you can't really tell what you're paying for the future growth, if any. For this company now there, there is no earnings over the last uh, 12 months uh, the industry was up 175 percent now the sales for carnival the last year they look phenomenal up 108.3 percent versus 38.3 wow i've never seen a five-year growth estimate so bad as this one here they say over the next five years they expect the earnings per share on this company to, to decline by 151%, far worse than the industry decline of 19%. So what that tells me, analysts see no positives for this company for the next five years of earnings, so that's not good. They used to pay that nice 4 or 5% dividend. Well, that is gone. You don't have that any longer. And then also, too, we see on the balance sheet, this one I'm really curious about, current ratio is 0.4 versus 1.2. That's very low. Any disruption, they could force this company on bankruptcy because they just would not have enough liquidity to get out of it. And here was a big kicker, the debt to equity, 4.7 versus 1.6. That's almost five times their debt to equity. Not a good position. Net profit margin, a negative 8.1% versus a positive 8.7. Return equity, a negative 23.3 versus a positive 72. Gosh, I didn't, very little positive on this. Uh, maybe you got something positive going forward. You, uh, you got the look on your face like, oh, no. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, I, I was just going to say real quick is on that current ratio, I do remember from holding the stock, um, I'm not worried about, well, oh, you got to right. dig deeper into it, but right. a big reason why that current ratio always looks so bad is because when you sell the tickets, it becomes a current liability on the balance sheet. So it, it's not really 
that bad. Right. But again, you got to understand those numbers where it could be that bad. So the, you, you want to look through it to see why that right. current ratio looks so problematic. Yeah. But I can't really help you on the debt to equity of 400. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's a problem. And I remember when we held it, their debt to equity was like 40%. I yeah, mean, it was, it, was, it was a great company. But uh, looking at the, the current price here, $14.79. I see the 52-week range here, $7.53. 52-week high, $19.55. So the stock has still been, I'm going to say, very volatile. I, I do see Grant, that over the last year, it's up 55%. So depending on when you bought it, congratulations. Could have had a nice little profit on that here as we, we stand with the current price. But looking going forward, I, I go out to November 2024. I do see estimated earnings per share of $0.93. Cents. Uh, that would give us a target sell price of $15.44. So it trades at a 4 PE multiple of about 16. So, I mean, there's not much room for growth on it. I will point out that they again report on a fiscal basis. So we'll be moving out to November 2025 here shortly. I do see earnings are expected to actually climb to $1.35, which would push the Ford PE multiple to under 11. So, I mean, I'm going to say there's still opportunity potentially from a valuation standpoint, but just that, that balance sheet. If things do slow down in the economy and, you know, all of a sudden people are like, I just, I, I don't want to travel anymore. Right. I, I, I I mean, they have been a big benefactor from all the traveling that has been occurring. If that goes sideways, uh, all that debt could catch up with them. So, I mean, for that reason, I, I just don't think I would be holding Carnival. And I'd say I, I think cruising is the best way to travel. Unfortunately, I get motion sickness so bad I can't use it. But the concept makes a lot of sense. It's inexpensive and you get to see a lot of places mm -hmm. and you never have to unpack and repack and unpack. I mean, it's a great concept to see different things. But, uh, and also too, the other thing that's always in the back of my mind, I remember, I think it was when we held it, uh, a captain of the ship was drunk oh, and yeah. he ran aground and that was major, major, major lawsuits <laughs> for them. So you never know. There, there's things that can happen with these cruise lines. And, and if you have a, a balance sheet that's clean and you have yeah. that, that captain make a massive mistake, you, you can get through that because you have the, the financial wherewithal capability to handle a mishap. Right. But a debt equity of 470%, you, you don't have any room for error. If you have a lawsuit come out, you, you're going bankrupt. There's yeah. no way you can handle that. Yeah. And that's my point because they, they just can't handle any storms coming up that would, would put them in the wrong direction because they, they just don't have any any liquidity any longer. Yeah. So, All right. Uh, again, if you like uh, have your questions, what you can do is submit your questions at our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And right in the middle of the page, you'll see Smart Investing Show Questions. Now, that's right above the Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors for 2023. That's really in the middle of the page. Right above that is where you'll see the Smart Investing Questions. And I'll even tell you a secret. If you pull it up on your phone, I even think it's easier. Really? Yeah, it's a little button. You just see it right when you uh, open the, the web page. It's very easy. You just click that button, and again, you can submit your questions there. Yeah, you know, and it is, because I've been doing the Smart Investing Show for... 30 years, I guess, close to 30 years. And uh, every show for that time frame, we always took calls. But because of changes and technology and everything else, we said, after 30 years, this is not going to be the best way to do it. Yep. So that's what we're doing. So, again, back when I first started doing this, I don't think uh, people, gosh, what were cell phones like back in the early 90s? Or bricks, right? Bricks, I think so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, let's talk to uh, our financial planner, Harrison Johnson. Harrison, how are you doing today? 
Good morning, guys. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. I, I know today we're talking about tax lost harvesting. So let's uh, let's uh, have your explanation on that. So tax loss harvesting is when you sell an investment for less than you purchased it for to create a realized loss that can be used to offset other capital gains. Now that we're getting close to the end of the year, it's important to talk about because investors like to engage in tax loss harvesting at the end of the year to reduce their tax liabilities. But before selling a position at a loss, it's important to understand the full tax benefit and the opportunity cost so you can decide if it is worth it. For example, Let's say you wanted to take a loss on a $50,000 investment after the stock declined 15% down to $42,500, resulting in a $7,500 loss that can be used to offset some long-term capital gains. The average investor is in the 15% federal capital gain tax bracket and the 9.3% state tax bracket, meaning that $7,500 loss results in tax savings of about $1,800. Now, this sounds nice, but your $42,500 position would only need to grow by about 4.3% to recoup that $1,800 tax savings, which is absolutely possible, assuming the investment was purchased for the right reasons and still has strong fundamentals. Volatility in the market is normal, so it's important to avoid missing out on big gains so while you're trying to save just a little bit of taxes now this doesn't mean tax loss harvesting is always a bad thing in fact there are a lot of reasons it can make sense Um, for example if an investor can offset some short-term capital gains or ordinary income with tax loss selling the extra tax savings um, because of the higher tax rate may justify it also if an investor's adjusted gross income is close to triggering um, IRMA, the income-related monthly adjustment tax for Medicare premiums, or they're going to trigger some extra net investment income taxes, then reducing your income through tax loss harvesting could be valuable. Or um, you know, maybe the investment just doesn't have a lot of potential going forward, so it would be best to sell um, and purchase something else while getting some tax savings along the way. So there are instances where tax loss selling is absolutely helpful, but realizing losses just because you have some gains that can offset it um, isn't always the best decision. And Harrison, we always say when people come in for the free consultation, how we do stuff, we do just say that we'll never make a tax decision over economic decision. I've seen people do this over my 40 years, like, I don't want to pay taxes. And you brought up the point about, I think it was like a 4.29% gain by selling. That would far wipe out the taxes. So you cannot make these emotional decisions just because you don't want to pay taxes. You can really shoot yourself in the foot and lose some good gains down the road. And especially, too, because a lot of times, it, you know, you have to wait 31 days to potentially look at buying that. And who knows what's going to happen in that 31-day yeah. time period. I mean, frankly, maybe you get lucky. Maybe it goes lower. Maybe it, yeah. mm-hmm. well, maybe it goes up 10%. That could happen in a 31-day window. It, it's just it's a, it turns investing into a trading and investing game. I'm sorry, not a trading, uh, a trading and guessing game guessing rather game. than investing game, which can be very dangerous. But I, I'm glad you brought up those points, Harrison, because tax loss harvesting, like many other things in the financial world, is a tool that if used properly, I mean, it, it, it does make sense in a lot of cases where that tax benefit could be much larger, where maybe you do need a 20% gain in the stock to offset the uh, the benefits of the, the tax loss harvesting. So it, it's really a case-by-case situation here. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think... A lot of people 
they get closer to the end of the year. Maybe they've got some capital gains. They're like, oh, I've got this position at a loss. I'll sell that, and then I'll offset it. Meanwhile, once they sell something, um, they don't keep an eye on it. Maybe it goes up 30%, and they, they missed out on uh, you know that big upturn. And ultimately, you know, tax loss harvesting, again, is a tool that can be used in certain circumstances. But if you're constantly selling things at a loss, you're not making any money. So uh, <laughs> ultimately, ultimately we invest to make money and it's a tool that is available. And again, if your AGI is close to a threshold, you can bring it down with some tax loss selling, or if there's a short-term capital gain that's taxed at a higher rate, or you have some ordinary income you're trying to offset. Again, there, there are times when it does make sense, but selling just because you have gains there um, isn't the reason that you want to do it. And I think kind of to your point as well, a lot of people don't realize that they may be in the 0% federal capital gains tax bracket. Yeah. So they may be doing mm-hmm. tax loss harvesting and thinking, oh, I'm offsetting my gains. But you're not paying anything on those gains anyways <laughs> at the federal level. So you only have state income tax. Really, your benefit there is maybe a, a, a few percent off that gain in, in the state of California. So it's you know, has to be looked at very, very closely. And, and one thing we do for our clients is that we do tax loss harvesting throughout the year. Uh, because waiting till the end of the year, you can really destroy your portfolio. But if you have 12 months to do it, you can do it in ways that it won't re- re- destroy your return on your portfolio, but yet you still get some tax benefits. So again, just thinking ahead of time, not being emotional, but saying, coming up with a plan and a way of doing things. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, Harrison, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you on Monday. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. Okay. Bye-bye. All righty. Uh, Harrison, if you want to contact Harrison, and again, I, I was going to, because he does all this for you as well. He looks at your tax situation. He looks at many different things for you. Um, if you want to have a conversation with him, what you can do is you can call the office at uh, 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. Or visit the website smartinvesting2000.com. That again is smartinvesting2000.com. And send them an email, set up that free consultation, and I promise you, you'll be very impressed with the things he looks at and goes over. I, I mean, I will just say, I mean, this is where Harrison really does provide a lot of value because the average advisor does not know enough about your financial situation. I mean, you really have to dive in deep to understand everything from your your capital gains on all your investment portfolios, what you earn on your interest for any of those, uh, I'll call the CDs, the the bonds, whatever you have, and again, the taxable income, anything that happens to make a really good decision on tax loss harvesting like this, you need to know everything. And and frankly, most advisors, they they just don't. And, And even on our end, a lot of times, if people just have us manage money, they just want us to manage that money but they're not filling us in on their day-to-day taxes right. and all the other stuff, that's where a good financial planner like Harrison can dive down into those details to make a decision on is tax loss harvesting actually going to be valuable for you. And also, too, he doesn't sell product. He's not going to try to sell you annuity or life insurance. It is a fee-based financial plan, so he's unbiased. He wants to do the best thing for you. A lot of listening going on to what your needs are as well as saying, listening, and then, oh, we'll buy this mutual fund or buy this annuity or whatever it may be. You will not get that. You get a true financial plan. Again, uh, at the website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Or call them at the office, 
646-436-4306. Let's go back to our emails here. We got an email from, uh, what's his name, Uh, Garrett, and saying, here's a company suggestion for tomorrow's show, uh, please. Uh, Orthofix, uh, symbol O-F-I-X. They're in the medical devices industry. Uh, 9.3% float, not not high, but not low. I uh, usually above 10%. I get a little bit concerned why. Uh, institutional ownership is 90.5. No PE ratio here, unfortunately, which tells me no earnings will last 12 months. Industry is at 69.6. Price of sales looks very good, though. 0.5 versus 3.6. And even price of tangible book value looks very good for this company, um, Orthofix. Uh, 1.3 versus 94.9. So that's a big positive. No pig ratio. No earnings over the last uh, 12 months or even five years, it shows. Uh, over the last year for sales, uh, they were up 44.2%, while the industry was down 0.4%. Five-year growth rate on those earnings looks pretty good from the analysts, uh, 9.4%, by the same as the industry at 96 uh, They do not pay a dividend. Uh, we do see on the balance sheet, uh, current ratio 2.6 versus 2.3. That's positive. Like the balance sheet here, debt to equity 0.2 versus 0.5. And net profit margin, unfortunately, a negative 20.4 versus a positive 5.4. And return to equity also is a negative 22.1. Uh, industry is a top, positive 10.5. Chase? Yeah, so current price here for, again, Orthofix Medical, their ticker symbol OFIX. It's $10.49. I see the 52-week range here. Wow. The low, $9.58, so I'm going to say quite close to that, especially when you compare it to the 52-week high of $23.19. So it, it has really kind of struggled, I, I think, probably as a lot of growth stocks have here as well. Now, going forward to December 2024, unfortunately, I see that this company is estimated to lose $0.15 cents on it. I, I will point out the low is a negative $0.36, cents and the high is an estimate of positive nine cents. So, I mean, this is a company that is still, I'm going to say, very speculative. It's very early in the, I'm going to say, life of this business, I would presume. I, I saw the market cap here is about 349 million. So, I mean, it, it's, uh, I'm sorry, 381 million. Right. It, it's, a, it's a small business. And, I mean, frankly, this is one of those that, uh, you know, you're, you're rolling the dice on here. And I'm not quite sure exactly. I mean, it looks like they do stuff for, um, you know, kind of spine and orthopedics. So, you know, I'm assuming something to do with kind of surgery and, and how those products function. I, I was wondering, because I, I thought it was dental. Orthofix, I, I thought orthodontic. Yeah, your mouth. The, yeah. the, the, the mouth, and that's why I thought, oh, Well, it says spine thing. and orthopedics, but yeah, ortho, I guess, ortho instead of orthodontist. Right. I think, right. uh, isn't orthopedics also with, like, your body? Because orthodontics uh, well, yeah. is your mouth. Ortho- your mouth, and orthopedics is another one. So, I mean, yeah. uh, I was just thinking for some reason that the, the dental side because, um, you know, but uh, I've seen companies go into that area before. But it's just it could be something great going forward, but I, I would put it in the growth category, the high-risk category that, uh, again, you've already seen a 50% haircut from the top. You can see another 50% haircut uh, from where it's at currently. It, it, there's just no reason... Uh, I can say to to invest in this company. Um, I mean, the earnings look like they're getting worse, not better. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, and it, well, actually, the earnings do look to be getting better over the next few years. So if if but the, well, but beyond the, but 2024. The, well, I, there's so few analysts on 2024. But I mean, because my estimates show here that the the problem is you you get less and less analysts, but. 
I'm showing 2023 a loss of 14 cents, 2024 a loss of 15 cents, 2025 67 cents. So, I mean, it does look like earnings are improving, but the problem is it's going to hinge off what products maybe get approved, what hits right. in the market. It, it's a guessing game. And, I mean, this stock, yeah, it could maybe go up to 30, which sounds great, but it, you could also go to Las Vegas and triple your money in 30 minutes at the blackjack table. It's the same concept. It's You don't know what's going to happen here. It's a very right. big risk. Right. And and also, too, I mean, I, I don't see any improvement in the earnings. I, I thought you said they were going down again. What was 2025? A positive oh. 67 cents. Okay. I thought you said negative 65 cents. So, so a big turnaround then. Yeah. How many analysts are one, two? There's only three, but three. there's four for 2024. So, I mean, yeah. there, there's just not a lot on this stock. It, it, it's... Yeah, it's, it's a guess. It's a, it's a guess. Yeah, and, and and just something that I would not recommend. Because very high risk. Very high risk. Very small company. Could be here today, gone tomorrow, um, or you know you could if you're a gambler. I mean, it, you you pay ten dollars a share today. Could be at uh, thirty five years from now, but you're gambling. You're not investing. So, all right. Uh, you got questions? Uh, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. Right in the middle, above the Forbes uh, Best in State Wealth Advisors, you'll see Smart Investing Show Questions. And I, I got to point out, we already have four questions uh, oh, well, in the email, so we'll, we'll get to them. And uh, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to all four today. But we'll, we'll start with Bruce here. He says, hoping you could take a look at Warner Brothers Discovery, symbol WBD, and explain how you value the company. All I see is negative earnings, which immediately turns me off to investing in it. Thank you. So again, Bruce wants us to look at Warner Brothers Discovery, ticker symbol WBD. Well, well let's go ahead and start off with those numbers here where we look at. Uh, they are in the entertainment industry. Uh, for this company, the negativity, the, the, the uh, short percentage of float is only 4.2. So a lot of people do not think this is going down. They, they think on the other side. Uh, he's correct. Warner Brothers does not have any earnings and no P.E. ratio the last 12 months. Industry is over 500. Price to sales, 0.6 versus 1.9. Price to book value, also 0.6 versus 2.4. So those are positive. And even the price of cash flow is 3.9 versus 16.5. They do not have a peg ratio. Uh, no earnings over the last uh, 12 months. Uh, sales over the last 12 months. And this is amazing. Up 61.7%, well above the industry of 3.8. They did have the Barbie movie. They have some other big hits that have done very well for them. So the sales have done well in spite of the strike that they went they went through. Uh, they do not pay a dividend. The balance sheet, you got a current ratio of 0.9 versus 1.2, and debt to equity is only 1 versus the industry at 2.3. Net profit margin currently is a negative 11.5%, which means for every dollar they bring in, they are losing 11.5%. And uh, return to equity, also negative 10.8%. Uh, well, looking at the current price here for Warner Brothers Discovery, it's ten dollars and seventy-one cents. I see the fifty-two week low, eight dollars and eighty-two cents, and the high here, sixteen dollars and thirty-four cents. Now, if you go forward for the company to December two thousand twenty-four, see estimated earnings per share of fifty-eight cents. So, if we use our sixteen point six multiple for that, we get a target sell price of nine dollars and sixty-three cents. It does have a forward PE currently of eighteen point four four. Now, the big thing to point out is we are near the end of the year, 
And, you know, you go out to December 2025, earnings are estimated to jump up to $1.02. So that would give you a forward multiple of about 10.5. And there's still a decent amount of analysts on that. Right now, there's 10 for 2024 and 8 for 2025. That's pretty good. So, I mean, there's not a huge fall off. And especially as we are coming very close to the end of the year, if you hold this, I wouldn't necessarily be selling it. I don't know if I'd be buying it at this point just because the, the numbers don't quite justify it for us. But I, I wouldn't panic and sell it. And the big thing you have to understand with Warner Brothers is when they integrated with Discovery, there is so many integration costs. And if you dig through the numbers, a lot of that earnings loss is coming from non-cash expenses. I mean, I believe they said their free cash flow was somewhere around $2 billion right. in the most recent quarter. And that's in one quarter. That's one quarter. Yeah, I, th I think for the year, it's like five or six billion. I mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, they're generating a lot of cash flow. And the reason for that is, again, the non-cash expenses. Now, what's going to happen, the reason 2025 earnings could jump so substantially is all of a sudden those non-cash expenses, they're gone. Right. If they fall off or they even reduce. And all of a sudden, earnings are there for that business. So, you really kind of got to dig through the weeds of the accounting for this company to see why the earnings look so poor and then how they can turn around. And also to look at what this company has, because this company is involved in so many different things. They have, I believe, the largest library of entertainment assets in the world, uh, which means they can play off a lot of that different stuff that they have. And you look at what they have. I mean, uh, Bugs Bunny always comes to mind. I mean, yeah. they, they have so many others besides that. And also, too, gaming. Uh, this company gets money from gaming because of, what is it, uh, Harry Potter and... Well, Harry Potter's their huge hit. They also had a Mortal Kombat come out Mortal in Kombat, as well. Right, right, yeah. So they've got these things, and when you look at what's happening, and they're trying to change now, and they still think linear TV is still going to give them money on things on the Discovery side some other things. But they're switching also to streaming, and they're doing great things on the streaming as well, but it costs money to do that. So you really have to understand this business if you're going to go into it. I, I, I think long-term you can see some good things in this business. I like the executive team as well. They made some changes there. Um, it's, it's a tough one because you look at the numbers, and that's why we say do your own research, go forward, because the numbers, eh, they don't look that good. But when you think about and see what's going on and you go out 12 to 24 months, like – this could be a huge hit. You know, it's so funny. Uh, Jim Cramer was actually talking about Warner Brothers Discovery the other day, and he, he was saying, you know, they're kind of moving with the interest rates. Mm -hmm. And he's like, but why? He's like, they have all the debt coverings, and they don't need to refinance their debt. So why are they moving with the, the tenure? It doesn't impact them. Right. And, and it, it's, it's a big thing that, I mean, they've kind of been hit with it. And, you know, obviously a lot of real estate's been hit with it. But, you know, Warner Brothers they're really aggressively paying down debt with that immense amount of free cash flow that they have. And I'll tell you the big secret. All of a sudden, they get that debt to a very good spot, let's say. What do they do with all that free cash flow? Buy back stock, Issue pay dividends. dividends. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it could be, I think, over the next five years, a very good transformative story of, of what David Zaslov and his team was able to accomplish there at Warner Brothers because they have the assets, they have the cash flow, they have, I think, that the I'm going to say the, the properties, which HBO, Max, right. and, and their kind of linear stations in place, I think, to be very successful. Oh, and the, the DC comics, those are huge. they yep. got Batman, they've got uh, Spider-Man, I think, as part of that. All, all uh, now Spider-Man's Marvel and oh, Marvel. Sony. Uh, who, who else am I thinking of? Batman, Superman. Uh, they have Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, yeah. So, so they got some great names there. And I was looking at their balance sheet. You go back to June 2022, the debt then was 30, 
uh, not 30, $51.4 billion. They pay that down to now, as of September, $43.4 billion. So a big pay down of almost, what, $8 billion in debt. They're paying down with that huge cash flow. So debt should not be the issue. Yeah, and, and what I would encourage you to do here, Bruce, is you, you know if you want to look closer at this business, uh, as I said, I, I wouldn't be buying it now, but maybe wait until the end of the year to see how the numbers come about and, and see what 2025 is going to look at a little bit closer. But I, I would encourage you again to look at those non-cash expenses that should be falling off the income statement. Yeah. So, and, and this is all about analyzing a company, looking at a company. That's what we talked about with Carnival Cruise Lines. That's what we talked about. You know, that, that was a great call on on uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. I mean, you've got to look at these as businesses and stop looking at the stock price saying, oh, the stock went down, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent. It's a terrible business. No, that's just the short term craziness and the market you're going to have. And we've seen things that we look at like, why is this so low? I mean, we've got some businesses that are like, this is crazy. What do we do? We keep buying them because we see the fundamentals. We know down the road, two, three years, like, wow, we'll have very nice returns on those. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we do have time to take one more question. Are you going to take one more? Okay. I, I think we got time. All right. We'll um, and it's from Rick in Tucson says, love your show and was looking at retiring with majority of dividend holdings in my portfolio. Any thoughts, good or bad? Thank you. What's the question again? He's looking at retiring with majority of dividend holdings in his portfolio. So I think he's looking at more of a dividend strategy. Okay. Which, you know, it, it we always say it could be a part of your portfolio, right. but the dividend should be secondary in nature. Yeah, because you want to be careful going after dividends because dividends, they are a big part of our portfolio. But we, we look at dividends, I think we say 9 out of 10 investments we do have dividends coming with them. But don't base your investments just on the dividend side because you could be missing a lot on the growth side. And you, if you start chasing dividends, you're going to have ones that, oop, they got cut or the stock goes down. Now you're stuck with that. So be very careful about a dividend strategy. We look at a strategy for our growth investors where we pay a 6% distribution rate. Income investors. Income yeah. investors. Yeah. That pays a 6% distribution for our investors that combines dividends with uh, the growth of the stock or the... Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. If you have a, a company and you're you're just living off the dividends of that company, what if that dividend gets cut? Are you just going to take a pay cut in yeah. retirement? It, it's a, a very dangerous strategy that, that people may not be realizing. So that's where understanding the investment is so much more important. We say we're value investors first, but by nature, about 9 out of 10 companies in our portfolio pay a dividend. But the dividend should not take priority over the, the value of the investment at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and we had a couple of companies this past year that uh, cut dividends, which we were kind of happy they did because we do look at it as a business. It's like, yes, you're going to cut that dividend. You're going to use it to strengthen that business, which will have higher dividends down the road. But if you're counting just on that dividend, you're going, oh, my gosh, you're cutting the dividend. It's for the strength of the portfolio, which you have to understand. So that's why I don't really like when people say, well, all my stocks pay dividends. I'm living off those dividends. That can really be a, a terrible thing down the road because we will have – you know, I think we're through this time. We'll have these times again down the road. When you retire 20, 30 years, you're going to have some terrible times during that time frame. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's going to be a lot of difficulties, and businesses change. I mean, people used AT&T, GE as, as, you know, retirement assets, oh, yeah. I'm going to say. you got to be careful. Exactly. Well, this is Closing Bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational person only and should not be used as investment advice. If I discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 
888-546-4306. And be sure to visit our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And don't forget in the middle of the page, Smart Investing Show questions. Ask your questions. We'll hit them next week for you, the week after. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back next week right here on the Smart Investing Show. To think that I did all that And may I say